We know that people who don't do a lot of movement, who've never been physically active, are more prone to developing persistent pain. And so that seems to, you know, then you get a double whammy. First of all, I didn't do a lot of movement. Now I'm sore and I'm scared of moving. And now I go to see this fit young buck that tells me I've got to go to a gym where there's lots of lycra and lots of sweat and lots of mirrors. Uh, No. Today's topic was persistent pain. Now we're getting better understanding the science around this subject, but it can still be tricky getting simple and helpful messages across to our patients. And that's what we explored today. The great questions to help the patient with their lived experience of pain and also explored some biases around exercise, how and when to use it. We had Bronnie Lennox-Thompson on today's podcast to discuss all of this with us. Now, she's an occupational therapist, but what's really interesting is later on, she completed another degree in psychology and also went on to attain her PhD. Now, Bronnie spent most of her working career helping people with persistent pain, particularly at work. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. Bronnie's so passionate about this topic. I'm Michael Risk, and this is Physio Explained. All right. Welcome, Bronnie, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. It's lovely to join you and the rest of the physios and assorted others that watch Physio Explained podcast. We've been talking about this offline and you're passionate about persistent pain. And something particularly you said in the email was you're passionate about helping people live with persistent pain. Could you expand on that? Yeah. I mean, the sad reality is that despite all the progression that we've made in in understanding mechanisms, neurobiology, psychology, and such like with pain, we actually don't do a very good job of reducing pain and getting rid of it for people who have neuropathic pain in particular and nociplastic pain. So the chances are that if you've got um, a post-herpetic neuralgia or you've got uh, radicular pain, or you live with um, endometriosis or migraines, you're going to need to learn to live with pain. It just does not disappear. And none of our treatments do a great deal to reduce the pain. And our research suggests that it's not so much about the pain intensity, it's the disability and distress that people have about having pain that creates the the ongoing problems. So that's Mm. why I'm I'm focusing on that. I love that. And so I'm also thinking that's a wonderful message for patients to to get on the same page. But what about health professionals? You you said we don't do a good job getting rid of pain. Could you could you speak to that and either through your experience or the research? What is that telling us that we're, we're not changing it? Um, well, when we look at effect sizes from randomized control trials for medications, so pharmacological approaches, mm. for cognitive behavioral, psychological kind of approaches, none of them show more than a very modest reduction in pain and disability. Hmm. And that's really hard for clinicians who invest their time and energy in trying to help people where the focus is often on, well, if I reduce the pain, you'll go back to normal and your life can just go on as as, as it was. 
Mm. And that's a message that people, um, clinicians and people with pain don't take too readily. It's difficult. Yeah. Where do you think that's being perpetuated? Is that is that a patient in persistent pain? They just have the idea that hope or maybe hope that they can get rid of pain and then the clinician supports that? Where is that coming from? I think it comes from both angles. There's a societal belief that living or having pain is a bad thing and that we should not, ought not have pain. Um, when really before the advent of um, analgesics and um, effective treatments, so thinking early 1800s, we did not have um, the expectation that we wouldn't live with pain. It mm. was just a given. But as time has gone on, I think, you know, it's a gambler's high that we get every time somebody responds and they go away and they don't have pain anymore. And so we think that can happen for everybody. Mm. But actually, that's not what our research shows. And I guess from both ends, the um, public perception and the clinicians' beliefs and and hopes collide in this really um, difficult dilemma where people keep trying from Mm. both sides. Can I find one more thing that might do something? And pain's really difficult because it's complicated. It's not measured by any objective means. We don't have a a pain thermometer. We don't have a biomarker. So what we've got is what somebody does. And even reporting my pain is a, a number out of 10, which frankly is nigh on impossible, even that, we forget that's not a direct marker of pain intensity. That's a way of somebody communicating to somebody else about their situation. Mm-hmm. So if you're gone to ED, the emergency department, with a, with a pain, and they ask you, what's your pain out of 10? And you gave them a, oh, it's a two. You know you're probably not going to get any drugs. But if you say it's a nine or even if it's a 11 out of 10, you start, you're you're trying to communicate, this is really unbearable, I can't cope. So I think that's um, at least part of the problem. We don't have this nice external objective measurement, which means that pain is really difficult and pain's influenced by the meaning. I can put up with a pain if I think it, isn't something terrible. Like if I've had um, people who go in for hip replacement surgery, they're going to have pain immediately after surgery and they willingly go in to have the surgery because once that post-operative pain settles, then they expect that their pain will reduce and go. So we will willingly do stuff when it hurts Mm -hmm. if we think it's worth it. But if you... Think about somebody who's maybe had a cancer and um, and this is a true case of a guy that I was seeing who'd had prostate cancer and then he got a back pain. Now, as prostate cancer was treated, he wasn't, there was nothing, you know, completely gone, but his fear was that this back pain I've got might mean 
I've got cancer in my bones. Hmm. So that will increase the distress and also the attention and the meaning of what that pain is. And that makes it harder to deal with. It does. It's, it's so contextual. And I, I'm really interested to hear, I, I feel we're doing an okay job as health professionals moving to that contextual understanding, those things you just outlined. I, I personally struggle with this and a lot of therapists I try to help struggle with this. How do you message that to the patient that comes in, that pain is actually not a great marker? And also the research shows us we don't do a good job of ridding it. So we, yeah. we, we better off focusing on this. How do you message that? Um, well, I'm in the fortunate position that most of the people that I see are well down the journey. I mean, it's not mm. fortunate in many respects because these people have been to numerous professionals who have failed to tell them your pain might not go. So yeah. I get somebody three to 10 years down the track and they still hope that somebody's got something hiding away there. Mm. So, um, but when I do, I talk about we don't know what your pain may do. Mm. What we need to focus though is at the moment, what would make your life be more like your life and not just um, life by numbers or just trying to wait until the pain's gone? How can we make your life well, well worth living anyway? So I don't I really that. talk about whether the pain's going to be there or not, much more around even with the pain as it is today, what could we be doing that brings meaning to you, makes your life a good life. And I think this really takes us into what you were talking about offline, mm. which was we can, we can be over-reliant on prescribing things like manual therapy for a short-term win or like I've been guilty of this exercise. You were saying we might prescribe <laughs> movement options because... Yep hey, that's in my toolkit and if I've got a hammer, it's, it looks like a nail, right? So yep. It's, yep. can you speak to that? I mean, when we think about movement, if we start thinking exercise, too many people, that word conjures up, especially for somebody who's not a, been an exercise person, mm. they can remember what it was like to do physical education in their you know, primary school, intermediate where, like me, I was the last person chosen for the side when we're playing ball sports. I just have terrible coordination. I can mm. dance. I just cannot hit a ball. Yeah. And so people can have this fixed idea, and that includes clinicians, of what exercise looks like. But we look back to, say, evolutionary um, biology, and we start to look at what do people who are in hunter-gatherer societies do. And they do not go and do a gym workout. Mm. Their daily lives are full of movement options, lots of them. We don't have quite as many options that are demanded from us in our current lifestyles. We've got to, you know, clean the floors and do the gardening and stuff, but we can use labor-saving devices. So what I try to talk to people about is how can we build in some movement opportunities right throughout your day. And this might look like going for a walk with the dog, or it might look like jumping in a pool and doing a few laps, or it might look like getting up every 
hour or so and going up and down the stairs. It can mm-hmm. be um, so many different ways. And that gives people variability, which we know is a good thing. Lots of opportunities, lots of different forms of movement. Then you're probably going to do your body a lot more good as well as lots of different ways to do that so that if one option is ruled out because the weather's awful and you just don't fancy going out for a walk, then you can have other things that you can do. And I think that was brought to the fore during COVID lockdowns where people have not been able to go out to do their usual form of movement. And for a very, you know, the very first few months, people were really getting stressed. So then they started to say, well, maybe I can look at something else. And so we've seen this enormous range of new things that people can do. And I think that is something that I would really urge movement practitioners um, to really think about. There can be lots of different ways we can encourage people to enjoy this diversity that our bodies have of things that make them feel good, including cleaning floors and doing the gardening. That's huge. And that's the biggest thing I've learned from you, Bronnie, from from reading your blog and your comments <laughs> on socials, is that we can move away from that bias. Um, and it's actually simpler as a clinician because you're giving them something they love and you don't have to have this magic prescription. So it's it, <laughs> it, feels, it feels easier and evidence-based, which is a good thing. And I... Yeah. I love what you're pointing out. Most of us have done some form of movement science, exercise science, physio, OT. We probably have this huge bias to positive experience with movement and exercise, and that's not necessarily the story for our patients. Very often it's not. In fact, we know that people who don't do a lot of movement, who've never been physically active, are more prone to developing persistent pain. Mm. And so that seems to, you know, then you get a double whammy. First of all, I didn't do a lot of movement. Now I'm sore and I'm scared of moving. And now I go to see this fit young buck that tells me I've got to go to a gym (laughs) where there's lots of lycra and lots of sweat and lots of mirrors. Uh, No. (laughs) So let's be more optimistic about the opportunities that people can have so they can mix it up. And then we don't have to constantly be on their back because they'll do it because they love it. Mm. And to wrap up today, Brody, there's something you said offline, which I I really want to explore because you actually have done further study in psychology and it is this really difficult line or gray line, or maybe not so difficult for you, but (laughs) this space between psychology and physiotherapy or psychology and exercise science and where do we start and stop as a health professional when we've got that patient in front of us? What's your perspective on that? Um, very briefly, if you're going to help people change their behavior, you are involved in teaching and learning. And teaching and learning is a psychological process. Mm-hmm. So you're using it anyway. Where I draw the line is if there is frank psychopathology or the risk of psychopathology, somebody is depressed, somebody has an anxiety disorder, Mm. um, or if they are drug dependent, then that's the province of a psychologist. Mm. But when you're just talking about somebody who's a bit stuck and a bit despondent, a bit fed up, with not making any progress. That's a situation you meet with anybody who is about to change what they do. Mm. 
Mm. And that's normal. So I think we can de-pathologize normal behavior change. When we're helping somebody understand why they're doing something, that's not usually psychological. It Mm. is, technically. But it's also what we do as OTs, physios, exercise physiologists, chiropractors, osteopaths. That's what we do. So we Mm. give people an explanation. And if they get stuck, we look at ways we can change what we ask or how we ask people or how they think about it so they can feel more confident that they can have a go. That's as far as we're really going. We're not doing psychology. We're just being people facing other people and helping them through a tough time. Mm. What, what has been your favourite resources for helping upskill us in, in behaviour change, if we put it that way? Oh, two, two really important things. One's uh, motivational interviewing. You can't go past using or developing your skills in motivational interviewing because what we're developing in there is, is some communication skills that we can develop to help somebody resolve their ambivalence about doing something difficult. And the second tool that I really like is, is acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. And the reason I like that is because that's about what's important. What's, what are the person's values? How can we help you unhook from what your mind starts telling you about? And both of these are open to people from any kind of background. They're not the preserve of people who do mental health. Though they might have started there, they're broad and applicable across the board. So I think we can pick up those two areas of um, of learning and I'd hope to see them become an integral part of their undergrad program, um, you know, undergrad ed. At the same time, let's keep refining those skills because they do help with reducing the strain on us as clinicians. We're not having to work so hard to try and beat somebody around the head to go do what you want. Instead, we're just building their confidence and increasing their understanding of how important it is by using things that matter to them. And that's, um, that makes a big change from being you know, the school teacher with a big, big stick to being somebody who is encouraging and rewarding and enthusing. And um, that makes our job just a world away from you know, the old style um, back school type mm. PTs. <laughs> 100%. And Brody, I always get something out of reading your information, reading your comments, and I've got a lot out of today listening to you. You, you make a very complicated topic a lot simpler for health <laughs> professionals. So a big thank, thank you. you from me and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Anytime. Anytime. 